0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
1: I said this expedition changed me. I went in full of ego. I came out massively humbled and floored, literally floored by a parasite. Um, But it was the thing that gave me most purpose.
2: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast, in this episode with Pip Stewart. Pip is a journalist, writer, explorer and mother, and she goes into great detail in this episode explaining each of these facets and why they're important to her. Pip began her career writing about other people's adventures, before realising she really would quite like to go on a few of her own. So after cycling home to the UK from Hong Kong, she set about recalibrating her life. In this episode we do just that, and explore a few ideas and views on the world of adventure along the way. The story culminates with Pip's first ascent of the Essequibo River in Guyana, from source to sea with two friends, and Pip is very honest about the lessons she learnt and the mistakes she made along the way. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at the adventure podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Pip Stewart. <music> Right off we go. Well this is a few years in the making but um, welcome and thanks very much for doing this. Um, It would probably be a good idea for you to introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do.
1: Cool well firstly thank you so much Matt. Yeah as you say it is a few years in the making. We first met in Kendall, didn't we? So um, many moons ago and uh, you were talking about doing a podcast then and we said oh that'd be that'd be fun and uh, here we are. But my name is Pip Stewart. I am a mum a writer and a campaigner for neglected diseases.
2: That's an interesting introduction and not what I expected. So I assume that introduction has changed a lot over the past five years.
1: Oh my goodness, yes. I think, I mean, come on, let's face it. Who actually knows what they're doing in life? Because <laughs> yeah. I don't, Matt. Um, yeah, it's changed massively. So I guess when I met you, um, i just come off the back of an expedition to Guyana, um, which was quite a hardcore world-first kayaking expedition. And I was part of an international team on that. Um, and I was probably pushing more of the hardcore expedition line, Um, And then I got pregnant and you suddenly realize that maybe small people and going off to the jungle for three months aren't entirely compatible, um, which suddenly prompted a whole like, oh, my goodness. So if I'm making a living out of adventure and I'm now breastfeeding and housebound, how does that work? Um, So, yeah, had a bit of a rethink and um, essentially decided I wanted to do more writing because I absolutely love it. Um, still talking about adventure in the outdoors, but maybe not necessarily doing these big, gnarly, you know, hardcore adventures um, that I was sort of doing previously. So, yes, good observation. Uh, <laughs> things have changed a little bit for me.
2: Well, maybe we can unpack each one as we go, but um, it would probably be good, I think, to go back and sort of try to understand how you got into this world. What was your kind of childhood like and access point to adventure in this world?
1: yeah well, I think childhood um especially given that you' got two kids as well is it's so important, isn't it? It's a lot of the grounding for caring about the outdoors and adventure and for me, you know my my dad was in the forces, I kind of got carted around all over the place um but my parents were amazing role models in that like when my when we lived in Germany, my mum would just drive us back on her own from Germany back to the u k and You know, she had two kids and I'm thinking, God, like now I'm a mum myself. That is quite an undertaking when you've got two small children screaming in the car. So I think my parents sort of imparted this love of adventure and travel. And then in terms of the outdoors, um, I was really lucky that at my school as well, not only were my parents really into sort of getting outside, um, when we did eventually sort of settle in the UK, my school did a Duke of Edinburgh kind of award scheme And that's where I learned to sort of map read and go out into the nature and um, just make all those mistakes that you do make when you start kind of getting into the outdoors, like pitching a tent in the wrong place, bringing the wrong footwear. Um, But I loved those really gritty moments of just like, what are we doing? Um, And then from then, I kind of forgot about the outdoors, to be honest. Um, I went to university. I thought I'm going to try and do more travel. Ended up getting a job at Innocent Drinks, a bit of a false start, thinking, oh, you know, I I can do sales. That's what everyone tells you to do after university. You go and join a grad scheme. Um, I was utterly useless. Uh, I didn't sell anything because I'd go into schools and they'd say it's too expensive. And I'd go, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so <laughs> I nearly got sacked, um, but I left before I did and essentially went to Hong Kong to study a degree in journalism. And that's probably where this merging of nature and writing sort of happened. So I studied at Hong Kong University, did a master's in journalism, spent four or five years reporting in Asia, and then we were living in Kuala Lumpur um, for a bit as well and decided to cycle home. So we cycled from Malaysia to London, and that was the first time that I thought, actually, yeah, we can merge storytelling and adventure here. And I'd previously worked in sort of hardcore news, um, having had this false start in business. And honestly, Matt, it was depressing because you realize, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, as is a saying that happens in newsrooms. And I'm like, that is not how I want to be living my life, you know, chasing the negative. Um, Because I think mindset is massively important. And I think this first bike ride showed me just the power of adventure the power of untold stories of getting yourself to places um that you wouldn't necessarily find on the on the tourist trail and, and talking to people and that was sort of reignited my uh direction and purpose I suppose got back to London then reality hit and I'm like right okay no we do actually have to pay rent <laughs> life is expensive as it turns out you can't just fanny around on a bike for a year um and yeah I ended up working at Red Bull So it's funny how, um, you know, you often, I always say to people do what you're curious about, um, and, and sort of life sort of opens itself up for you. And yeah, so got to Red Bull, worked as their adventure editor, um, having just so seen an advert saying they were looking for someone having done this bike trip, it kind of fit in well. And I think that's actually where I met you sort of at that period of time. Um, and then from there, I just managed to meet lots of interesting people and sort of got pulled into expeditions with people who are a lot more capable, uh, and organized than I was. And so, yeah, I was lucky enough to do an expedition with a friend of mine called Reza Pakravan, and he was filming a documentary looking at deforestation in the Amazon. Um, and then another uh, woman I met on social media called Laura Bingham approached me and said, you know, I'm thinking of doing this world first kayak, uh, through the Guyanese jungle. Do you, do you want to join me? Um, And so, yeah, I was really fortunate to kind of be pulled into other people's expeditions. And that's how, yeah, sort of a career in adventure was shaped um, through luck mainly and bonding with Laura. I think it was because we met at a, a festival called Campfire, an adventure festival, and I offered to change her baby's dirty nappy. (laughs) <laughs> um so I think, like, you know, opportunities come in all shapes and forms and i think it for, was from there that she was like okay this uh this bodes well for an expedition teammate she she can come with me do some writing and document what's going on so um yeah take opportunities would be my advice
2: yeah i think that is one of the key messages i mean you said i can't remember if you used this word but i think you said um really lucky or lots of chances um but i think there's a big part in there of you know not everybody decides to cycle home um, across the world, and what led you to make that decision because that's a massive decision. Most people would fly
1: yeah, um so my partner Charlie or uh, well my husband now he um said to me, "Look, I've been reading all these blogs, people can do this, and you know I'm not an athlete. I know you've had some major athletes on this podcast <laughs> and <laughs> I am more of the cake eating, uh, sort of variety. <laughs> um, you and you know, me I'm
0: both.
1: Not, yeah, I'm not fit. I'm not particularly athletic, you know, I'm five foot three. And as I say, I like to eat cake, uh, which is good actually, if you're riding a bicycle, cause you do need a bit more padding. Um, and I think when Charlie suggested it, I thought, well, actually, you know, why not? Like what have we got to lose here? And I think, When I think back about when I haven't taken up opportunities, quite often it's a fear of what other people think or your your kind of own inner demon saying you're not good enough, you can't do this. Um, And actually, sometimes I think you just have to say, you know, effort and just just give it a whirl. And that that's sort of the the philosophy with the bike trip. And, you know, three weeks into this bike trip, Matt, we hadn't done any training. We just set off with like four loaded panniers on on the bike going through like motorways in Malaysia, trying to lift our bikes over these central reservations, going, this was a terrible idea. Um, But we found like a hill, basically. Um, I mean, I can't even call it a hill. It was like a tiny bump. And yet I couldn't get up it. And um, I basically had a tantrum, not dissimilar to one I've seen my three and a half year old having. Um, And I said to Charlie, you know, I just can't do this. You picked the wrong woman. I tried to break up with him. and he sort of said to me, well, look, Pip, these are not physical journeys. These are mental ones. And I'm a lover of words, Matt. And I think that really stuck with me. These are not physical journeys. These are mental ones. Because I figured, you know, if I can sit in an office from nine to five, I could sit on a bike. And once I got out of the way of myself going, you're not fit enough, you're too this, you're too that, you're not enough of this. I was like, do you know what, I actually can do this. And you see these stories of these amazing people doing incredible things and you never, or I never, kind of thought I could be one of them. And I was like, well, what if I just stick it out? And it was amazing because, yes, I mean, it took us 13 months to cycle from Malaysia to London and people do it faster. Uh, Charlie probably could have done it in about six. But the fact is we got there um, and I think that's just to just grit things out, really.
2: Well and you know these are semi rhetorical because i can guess the answer but were you trying to break a record did you have a fixed <laughs> time you had to be home you for know, the world's
1: slowest ride, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, no, I think I think there are people far slower who have spent decades doing it. So I am um, not. I don't even win that one. Um, no, we, we were trying to aim to be back for Christmas. That was, you know, Christmas is really important in our household. And I was like, I promised my mum I'll be home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And on the 23rd of December, we eked into the, you know, uh, Westminster just under Big Ben. And I was like, yes, we made it um and and then reality hit of like oh no now now what are we going to do <laughs> where are we going to live and how are we going to pay all the bills for the place that we don't know where we're going to live um, so yeah we moved back in with our parents which was slightly slightly miserable after having spent you know 13 months together and then sort of waving goodbye and saying right I, i'm going to go in my childhood bedroom now see you later
2: <laughs> you see there's a lot to unpack there as well i'm you know i'm fascinated by these sorts of conversations because like you say, I have interviewed a lot of the, and you know, this is an audio podcast. Big inverted commas, heroes, um, who are often full of their own issues and insecurities and reasons for needing to be heroes. Um, and you know, and I, I don't um, treat any of these people with any particular intent here. But you know, Mark Beaumont, I think his record is a hundred days. I can't remember his record. It's yeah. something like a hundred days. I see. Um, <laughs> Alistair Humphreys took four years because they had different objectives and different intentions. And I think that perception of adventure, a perception of difficulty is so interesting because I do have this slightly woolly, hippie-ish theory that anybody could cycle around the world.
1: I don't um, think that's woolly or hippie at all. I think that's <laughs> bang on. And, and I think, actually, Matt, I think you've hit the nail on the head with that point. I think because adventure, to a certain extent, has been commercialised... A lot of people within that realm have a vested interest in, like, making it out to be very difficult and, you know, exaggerating the, the difficulties and, and making us lay people go, we could never do that. And to a certain extent, I'm not going to scale the North face. I mean, that is that is technical. <laughs> But I, I can I can get on a bicycle, um, I can learn to kayak, I can start small as can anybody and actually, do you know what you can even start climbing and if that's your goal, you you can get there um, So I think we need to slightly demystify this and slightly um, say well everyone these heroes are people too. you just have to start somewhere and be willing to be a beginner and willing to make a mistake and kind of laugh at yourself along the way.
2: yeah. And I think often, you know, I've been having a few conversations with people recently about um, doing, you know, achieving your dreams and doing special things, and, you know, I'm at a certain age and certain stage in my career where I've done a lot of the stuff I wanted to do, and I'm so proud of that, but I'm also wary of, like, arrogance and ego and what would what do you do next? And the more I think about it, the more I realise, like, and I, I'm not fishing here, and I absolutely sincerely mean this from a place of honest confidence i am not special there is nothing physically special about me i wasn't born with loads of money i wasn't a gifted rock climber i'm not a natural genius creative like certain people i know but i did all of the things i've done and this is at risk of turning this into a self-help episode but because i just didn't stop doing them
0: yes
1: and and
2: it's kind of that simple
1: well, a friend of mine had a lovely analogy. He's a fashion photographer, actually. And for years, he was saying he struggled. And his analogy was just stay on the bus. He said, there are so many people who wanted to be fashion photographers when he started. And, you know, they didn't get jobs and they have to work and they have to be assistants. And And he's like, I just stayed on the bus. <laughs> it's like, I was like, he watched everyone else get off. And now he's booking really amazing jobs around the world. And we're so proud of him. But he's again super humble, but like you, and you you know, I I do believe you are special, like right? you've got a great way with people. <laughs> um fish fishing, I, I got that one. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. No, he and I, I love that analogy, just stay on the bus.
2: Yeah. It's totally true. I think it, there's two sides to it. One is, I mean, I you know, I can play with that for a second. I quite like it, is stay on the bus because other people will get off. Um I think that's certainly been key to certain successes I've had is I've just I'm just, the, you know, I'm still here 15 years later, a lot balder, still trying to make it work and spent most of those 15 years poor. But this is the full self-help moment. And it's where, I, you know, I, we've, we've stuck with this bike ride for a second, even though there's lots more to talk about. But you did it like you got on the bus if we're playing with the analogy. You know, and yeah. that's a choice. And I often think that is the most difficult decision. Is that it's that perception of I can do that or I can't do that.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's a probably a middle ground there, which is I don't think I can, but I'm going to try anyway. And that's where I would encourage people just to to do these things, whether it's like you want to be an artist or or whatever. And I think the other slightly cringe worthy thing I don't know if you find this is when you label yourself something. Because it's powerful saying, I am a insert word here. And you have, I am an adventurer, I am an explorer. And when you're sort of starting out, it sounds so contrived and so weird hearing these things coming out of your mouth. Um, but I kind of think if you're not prepared to say it, no one else is. Um, and you talk right at the beginning about a bit of a reinvention. And I think, if I'm honest, Matt, like a lot of my career has just been like playing with what do I think I am? What do I want to be doing? Um, and trying not to be too afraid of that.
2: Yeah. And I think it, I mean, we can get onto other things, but there's one question I have, which maybe needs pre cursing with something, but I don't know how much you've failed because I think that's a really interesting one. And actually I, I think it's really important to add at this stage, most of the happiest adventures, I, adventurers, sorry, I think eat cake. Um, you know generally i'm slightly it's the it's the upper echelons i uh, just think oh, but are you actually happy
1: like yeah. yeah you've
2: got some trophies but i don't know yeah
1: oh, that's really interesting cuz i kind of have this little theory that people who are really into like these big adventures are running from something or running to something um and Again, like this concept of happy is, is an interesting one because I think actually it's, it's more about trying to be content. And the best way I've found to be content, having made many, many public cock-ups on this front as well, is to get out of the way of myself and my own ego. And actually, rather than put selfie after selfie on Instagram, it's like, how can we lift up other people? Um, and I think actually probably the time we met Matt, I was getting this very wrong. Um, I was in the selfie generation. I was in the, I'm seeing everyone else around me making a living out of adventure by sharing their face and being like, look how amazing I am. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, if I am going to have to succeed, this is what I've got to do too. And it just, it felt really icky in my gut. And also when it comes to adventure and travel, it can lead you down a really dark and dangerous path I think when we start talking about issues of neo-colonialism issues of like appropriation um and this is where I think content creators have sort of a responsibility um to be aware of how we're presenting ourselves online and so I've come a long way from like your people eating cake are the happiest but I I think what I'm trying to say, Matt, is I think when you sit down and chat to other people and listen to their stories, not kind of share your own, I realize the irony of this, (laughs) say, on a podcast talking about myself, um, is when I personally feel most happy. What about you, Matt? What about you?
2: Well, no, I think that's, no, it's a good point. And I I love the uh honesty willingness to explore hypocrisy etc i think you know we could have some fun in this conversation but um i would also challenge you and say you're not actually talking about yourself very much we well, you know we're not just doing Pope's grand adventures this is who i am you're at well, this is you know it's deeper than that which i would say evidences what you're talking about but um what did you ask me my i mean yeah i i have this little ego moment but I've achieved a lot of the things I've wanted to achieve with my career or the things I thought I wanted to achieve, the things that 18-year-old Matt was really gunning for. And I don't want to say that most of them were hollow when I hit them, but they weren't as bright and lit up as I thought they would be and they didn't last very long. Whereas actually um, uh, the most the things I'm most proud of are the times where I've helped others do things. Yes. And often actually that's films I've made very recently. I mean, I can happily say names like Hamish Frost and Adam Raja are two people I've recently made films about. Both are very honest stories. Um, both are very exposing stories for those individuals. One I directed with one of my best friends who's also the creative director of my business called Emma Chrome. Um And we like, we we labored over those films and we spent hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and weeks making sure they were done properly ethically and the result like the power that those films have had on those people in you know what it's done to them their careers their lives their willingness to be honest and vulnerable you know has been amazing um yeah but also yeah just you know creating a platform for other people to tell their stories like this podcast i mean i'm immensely proud of this podcast um and what people get out of it
1: it's it's those acts of service isn't it it's it's elevating other people and i think that's when you get the warm and fuzzies don't you it's not when you're like hey look how great i am it's like oh my goodness look who i brought to the table or look look what i'm trying to do and as you say like you, you know the spark that you've achieved with this podcast and the, the knock-on impact of people who might have actually done some adventures because of you going oh, I've had this idea um and and gone beyond yourself so I think yeah I think there's real power in in that those acts of service
2: well yeah and I you know I'm giving much more of my own opinion than maybe I ever have in a podcast here but um I think part of that is because I think you're right and I think we're, you know we're on to You know, I had a lot of therapy about four years ago and I really, really needed it. Um, And that's a whole different story. But I realized that actually there, it was those acts of service that are ultimately what make me happy. And I strongly suspect most of us. And I've kind of reframed things for myself as, um, you know, in the world that I think is in many ways broken. And when I feel powerless, um, actually feeling like a steward and a guardian of the planet of the people of those around me is the the the, the easiest way for me to find contentment optimism excitement etc and the analogy which doesn't always work too well but it, I think it does in this context is you know nobody would wish war on anybody but war gives people a lot of purpose so in the second world war people at home had a lot of purpose our generation people right now our war is the natural world is climate change is radicalization is the drift towards the right like we can be apathetic towards that we can be scared of it or we can like do something about it and that doesn't Mm. mean that doesn't mean anything big bold or you know dangerous necessarily it just means be more of a steward Um,
1: Absolutely. And I think that sort of sparked um, something I've been feeling really sad about over the last day is, you know, the the tree in Sycamore's Gap, having been felled by a a young 16-year-old person. And I just, as you say, it's about kind of that that connection, that stewardship. And like, how do we, I I shared this story on my Instagram and I I don't think I've received so many comments, not even over the birth of my children. (laughs) I mean, people felt so connected to this tree, like people said they got engaged under it, people said this was on my bucket list, Um, and it's one tree, and, you know, I I can understand that if if trees don't mean anything to you, like, well, what does it mean? It's just one tree that's been cut down, but the symbol, the kind of, the fact that it's this medieval tree, it's a connection to our past and an enabler of our future, um, and it is, it's some nature connects us. And I think there's something really powerful in that. And even in like collective grief, um, which I've never seen in my lifetime, sort of collective grief around something natural, um, on such a scale, um, is powerful. And there is a slight, a slight inkling of hope within this. The fact that people have been so outraged, so heartbroken shows me that there is this very deep well of people who do genuinely care about things.
2: Totally. I think these, you know, these moments, they are, I've, I've photographed that tree like many times. I used to live near it um, and I've been kind of sad about it, but not that sad because I think it's this reframing. I kind of go, look how sad everyone is. Like, this is brilliant because, yes. and I don't mean this, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Like what it gives us now is this power to say, well, come on then everybody, let's go and save loads more trees and let's plant loads yeah. more trees, and let's go outside more and look at the trees. Um,
1: Absolutely.
2: And that poor 16-year-old kid, you know, I just think, of course they shouldn't have done it. I did, I, I'm i interested in actually why all this happened and whether or not they're a scapegoat or whatever. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it looks like a pretty good cut for a 16-year-old. Um, and I just think actually what that kid needs is three weeks on Outward Bound.
1: Um, Absolutely. And I, yeah,
2: that should be their punishment is you you're now going on bound for three weeks
1: well actually I, th- I think it should go even deeper Matt I think um you know I I really do think the curriculum and education in our, our country is a bit messed up you know we're asking children to sit in a classroom from like 8 30 till 3 30 or whatever it is and expecting them to learn now get them outside get them into nature um try and enable that um even if you're in an inner city there is like city farms and things in London and I just think the more we can connect people to their surroundings, the better chance we have of trying to get people to preserve it. Because yeah, it, I mean, I, I've got no idea who this kid is and like what his motives were, but how do you, how do you get someone to care? And I think it's to kind of show them it's part of their life too.
2: Yeah, totally. And I think we're speaking to something here that lots of listeners will probably also know about, agree with, but It's these lost words, you know, um, Robert McFarlane, Jackie Morris, you know, the acorn has been removed from the children's dictionary. I mean, well, if that isn't like the ultimate symbol of everything that's going wrong, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, Um, well, funny enough, that's what I'm working on at the moment. I'm trying to get like, I'm writing a a series of kids' nature-based books to try and, like I I read, I write stories for my daughter, Willow, and she loves them, and I'm like, right, how do I put this on a bigger scale? Because I think if you can reach... Kids at a young age, that's half the battle, isn't
2: it? Totally. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of soapboxing on this episode, and maybe that's okay. But I just think that has to be the answer. You know, why would you care what you don't, why would you protect what you don't love? And we all know those cliche quotes. But how do we get kids to love stuff? Well, get them to go and have fun in it, make them think yeah. it's theirs, sense of ownership. I think that's like, you can have a healthy feeling of ownership over a place, stewardship. Um,
1: Just put, put all the politicians in wellies, find a big puddle, jump up and down, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. all yeah.
1: love once again.
2: I thought you were going to say put them all in wellies, send them to the middle of Scotland and see who come out. <laughs> no. I mean,
1: that's the better idea, let's face it. <laughs> yeah.
2: I've never watched a show, but I saw, I saw that man Matt Hancock was on the SAS Who Dares Wins thing, and I thought and really mixed views that, oh, you know, no, really? more public profile, but also if they're going to push him in lakes and...
1: Oh, him... I mean, uh... Anyway. <laughs> what? Just right. what?
2: Well, you know, producer Laura will get very grumpy with me if I don't pull us back on track here, so I will try. Um, so let's talk about, you know, your you've been living in your parents um, after cycling back. And what happens next? How quickly did the Essequibo trip come about?
1: Well, basically, I, I love working at Red Bull. I was freelancing there for about three years. Um, but I was spending a lot of time reading and editing other people's adventures. And you know when you're like, this is great, but I'm kind of getting itchy feet again. Um, and they were very good. They let me, um, take sort of like three, three months off to go to Brazil and Peru to film a documentary on deforestation. Um, and then I came back and then I was like approached by Laura to do this trip to Guyana. And I was thinking, oh, there's, there's no way they're going to let me do this again. So I think that was sort of the kind of the end of that, where I was like, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and do this trip and try and make an actual living out of an adventure and what I've sort of been doing while I was at Red Bull was sort of looking at people who were doing that, figured out that they were doing a lot on social media. So every day I'd try and do just one thing to move me in the direction of where I wanted to be, whether that was, you know, research agents, like who are behind a lot of these explorers, how, what what's their knowledge or how are these people positioning themselves? So I think it's, I've, I've listened to lots of people who say, if you want to get into adventure as a career, just quit your job and travel the world. But the reality is you also need to pay for that. And, you know, you, you might have bills and mortgages or or whatever it is, like commitments. Um, so for me, it was just trying to do one thing. So that at the end of each day, I was like, OK, well, I've, I've moved in the direction. And so the Guyana thing, uh, Laura rang me up one day at, at Red Bull and she said, how do you feel about doing a world first trip through dense Amazonian jungle? Um, you know, you're going to go through waterfalls and rapids as Cayman. Um, and I think she caught me post-lunch, you know, when you kind of call that post-lunch slump, and you're like, Yeah, that sounds like a great idea, having hated kayaking the only time I'd ever done it. Um, and I sort of said, Yeah, I'm I'm keen, sign me up. And then began the uh the training process. And and this is where, like, hats off to the outdoors community, because they are amazing. Um I I did it with uh Laura Bingham, Ness Knight, and myself, and we were all sort of fairly novice kayakers. And the outdoors community just opened their hearts and minds to this trip. They really, you know, help skill us up, train us, um, provide assistance left, right and center. And then we did it in conjunction with the YY indigenous community um, in Guyana. So we had a a team of us going out there and uh, we had river guides and jungle guides um, who were just invaluable. And yeah, we spent three months kayaking from the source to the sea of the Essequibo River. Uh, which was a world first. No, no one had done it before. So yes, it wasn't like floating down a river with a pina colada. It was, it was a lot tougher than that. Um, and I'm quite lucky to be alive. It was an expedition that definitely changed me and changed how I sort of saw the world as well.
0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Okay, so we have a lot to unpack now. Um, so first, three months is a long time. You know, do you think you yeah. knew? I suppose you'd cycled back. I was going to say, do you think you knew what you were signing up for?
1: It was, but the difference with the cycling is that took place over a year and you always had a connection with a community. So we always felt safe. This was the first time that I'd gone completely off grid. You know, we are talking, uh, our, one of our guides with a guy called, um, Jackson Marwanaru. And he turned to me as we were heading towards the source of the river. And he said, I don't think anyone has ever stood here. And you think, wow, when you consider how many people have been into space and yet deep, deep jungle, like how few people, and this is, this is an indigenous um, person from the, the YY community saying no one has ever been here as far as he was aware. That was like so unbelievably humbling. Um, and just sort of put into perspective just what a small little dot we are in the grand scheme of life.
2: Yeah. I mean, that is an amazing feeling. Um, there's And again, I don't, we should probably shouldn't get bogged down this, but there's that slightly like, for you it's not this, but um, that post-colonial feeling of I'm the first person somewhere. But when you're with people who are of that environment, I suppose it's very different.
1: Well this is it and it was something um so the whole flag planting thing is very problematic and actually when it came to finding the source um we said to to the to the yy community where do you feel the source of your river actually is and please can you can you guide us there so that was a really amazing moment on the trip because you know it was an international multicultural expedition and we had um as i said Jackson for for when we got to the source, he'd shaved his beard off. And he said, it's really important for me that I have a photo with you all, like, on this moment that's, like, so historic for our community, looking my best. Um, and I, I just thought that was wicked. And, re- you know, just I, I love that. I love that little moment. Even though shaving in the jungle is not advised, uh, <laughs> as as we were told uh, quite early on. But I, I just, I love that it meant a lot to Jackson that that was something he wanted to do.
2: Yeah. No, it's amazing. I mean, there was. there's lots to unpack with all of this, but I think that connection to those people in that place... I mean, let's go there now. You know, how different would this trip have been if it had been, and I use this very frankly, deliberately, three white women um, going on a, you know, difficult, edgy um, kayaking trip down the river versus what you actually did?
1: Yeah, in all honesty, I think we'd be dead. Um, because, I, I mean, just... Every day, Matt, we were facing something that had the ability to end your life. And unless you're skilled in these jungle environments, um, you know, everything from snakes to scorpions to the actual river, um, you know, on the way up to the source, because it was obviously the river was getting narrower and narrower. We had like fallen logs that we had to chain for, chainsaw our way through and... Um, Ness and Laura are both incredibly fit capable women and I'm sure they could have probably done it physically um, without me definitely and potentially without guides because they are as I say very physical but it it was the knowledge um, and you you can't I mean that that takes decades that takes a lifetime to kind of that inherited wisdom um, that's passed down and yeah I mean without without our yy guides we we with the trip would not have been possible for sure um and i think that's what i've got very much wrong because of social media because what was being presented back at home was me going oh look at my selfie in the jungle and not actually giving enough thanks and gratitude and acknowledgement to the people on our team who were making this entire thing possible and that's why You know, earlier in this episode, I was talking about the dangers of making a living out of adventure and the dangers of ego um, and and dangers of defining yourself as well. So there's lots to unpack. But in short, yes, we would we would be stuffed without uh, without the guides that we had.
2: I have so much time and respect for the honesty because it's really. It's really difficult, actually, to look at a trip that significant that cost you so much in so many ways and say I feel like in certain parts and elements a bit I messed up a little bit and I've learned from that and changed and that's immensely positive and so much more I think respectable than you know just stiff up a lip no 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 we nailed oh, it
1: well, thanks Max I'm, I'm a big believer that I think everyone can teach you something and I think we are You have to be aware that we are all works in progress. We are going to get things wrong. And especially on these issues of diversity and colonialism and neocolonialism, like we need to have the tough conversations and we need to kind of be afraid to get things wrong to advance, I think. And the the real learning for me is that during this trip, someone I really respect and admire reached out to me and said, what you're doing is amazing, not least because it's neocolonial and racist. And my first reaction, one of like white fragility, kind of going, oh, my God, oh, my God, I, you know, I've got really good intentions. I don't, I don't mean to do any of this. And then it's actually looking at the impact of, well, actually, the optics of, tr- of the trip are genuinely saying something different. Um, and yes, of course, it's not my intention to be neo neocolonial racist, of course, but my actions are. And until we kind of acknowledge in the adventure community that we are getting things wrong and that we we are learning, and I'm still probably getting things wrong. I'm still probably saying all the wrong things, but I'm going to keep saying things because I, I want to learn and I want to sort of share this message um, because I think it's really important. And it was definitely... The lowest point of the trip for me, well, aside from sitting on a deadly snake and getting a flesh eating parasite, but you know it, it was one of the, the lowest points of the trip, um, but it was equally the biggest learning uh, uh, learning opportunity I had
2: so what if you're happy to talk about it what how was it being presented? Just where the white people being brilliant
1: what? I guess it was selfie after selfie of me, Ness, and Laura. We had um, I had a few pictures of like Jackson and uh, Semsi, our guide, and Nereus and Anthony, Ramel, Nigel. But like they, I was not putting our guide front and center in the way that I was putting myself front and center. And I was talking a lot about how I was feeling and maybe not sharing. As, like, given this is a world first, if I could go back now, I would be sharing a lot more of the flora and fauna, a lot more of our guides' um, thoughts and feelings. And actually, you know, every night I would sit down and say to our team, What were the highlights of your journey? What were the things that stood out for you? And that formed the basis of my book that I wrote off the back of the trip. Um, but on social media, I wasn't really sharing any of that. So it, it led me down a very dark path of me, 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 me. Maybe a bit of Ness, maybe a bit of Laura, not enough of our guides. Um, and, you know, if you're sitting back in at home on Instagram, it, it was giving a very different version of what was actually happening on the ground. And I think this has been a problem in many expeditions um, led by people from the global north, um, yeah, for, for, for centuries, actually.
2: I think this is really interesting. You're very welcome to disagree with anything I'm about to say, but... Um because I'm kind of working it out as I'm saying it. But some of this is a view I've had for a while that actually there's so much wrong with historic expeditions and how we've done stuff. And I've read a, a lot. Of, I'm fascinated by um, ancient and recent history when it comes to expeditions. But one thing I do like about a lot of the famous ones was actually it wasn't really about the people who did them. Now, books have been written about those people with hindsight, um, but it was about exploration. It was about what are we seeing? What are we finding? And yes, there was a lot of queen and country, king and country, all of that bad. But I find that so many expeditions these days are just about me. You know, I'm going to do a thing. And so that's cool. Like when it's testing the limits of human endurance, et cetera, or frankly, because you just want to, which is one of my favorite right. reasons for somebody to go on an adventure because I just want to, like, that should be acceptable. Um, but so much of it now is me, selfies, me, look how I'm finding it yeah. really hard. And now I'm finding yeah. it really brilliant.
1: I, th- I think this is maybe a symptom more of our culture as well, because, you know, on this expedition, we did we did find the uh, one of the sources of the Essequibo River, Guyana's largest river, you know, it's enormous. Yet, whenever... We've talked about the expedition or we've asked questions about the expedition. No one ever really says, well, t- tell me about that. And to, 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 to be brutally honest, Matt, if you said, give me the coordinates, I don't actually know them off the top of my head. I could look them up for you. But to, to that point, it's like that that was what we found on this expedition. Um, but that is not what people focus on. And so we it's very much um, chicken and egg in the sense of, I feel like our culture has changed as well from... a a more collective culture maybe when you're talking about these historical expeditions to the rise of the individual and individualism uh, which is playing out um, as, you know, selfies and and the whole narcissism that we have around social media. So I think it's probably both things.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting how we fix that because it is, people are fascinating. I'm fascinated by people, individuals' stories, you know. I mean, I run a podcast with people, you know, but... Is it that we have to show the awe and wonder more? You know, people want to know about the hardship. Of course, they do. Like sex sells, but is it? You know, it was my connection with this person who has a connection to the landscape, whose grandfather used to do this, this, or this. Is that the way it needs to go? I don't. I don't know. I,
1: I think it boils down to something very simple. It's like, is this useful for you? It, it is. Is what I am saying useful for the other person? Um, and your listeners might go, well, God, well, that was a load of rubbish. <laughs> Nothing in this conversation has been useful, God damn it!" Um, but, you know, is it going to inspire? Is it going to make people think? Is it going to improve someone's life in some way, shape, or form? And, you know, whether it's through a film, it, it could be escapism. But, like, what is this? Is this serving yourself or is this serving other people? And I think when we talk to people, when we interact with people, when we present things, especially on social media now, I really have to think twice about posting a selfie because I'm like, what is this for? Yes, it will serve an algorithm because people like faces. um, But is, is this useful for anyone? What, what is the point I'm trying to make in the caption and how can I, well, be of service to other people? Because otherwise I think we are going down this very dark path of, of individualism. um, And collectively, I think that's quite worrying.
2: Yeah. But what I, again, we're sort of drifting the topics here, but, the three most successful in terms of metrics posts I've ever done on Instagram were all about me. And yes. I am, like, I am a documentarian. You know, I'm a photographer, a filmmaker, a pocket. Like, by definition, my job is to document other things and share them. Yeah. And I don't choose what people react best to. Maybe I'm just a bad documentarian. But... um. <laughs>
1: No, but, but that is exactly it. But I think we are products of the environment. And, you know, I went from being a journalist telling other people's stories to going, oh, I really like adventure. It brings me a lot of joy. I can tell a lot of stories, learn a lot through doing it and then became more of a focus of it. And in that shift, I feel like I got that icky feeling of like, this just doesn't feel right. And I think when we put algorithms to our faces, it's just... Like we've all got a bit of an ego in there. Like, however much we we like to be liked, right? We like we like it when people are validating us. This is this feels good, but it's it's like eating junk junk food, isn't it? It's like having a burger for for dinner instead of like something healthy, and and that is basically what social media is doing to us. And I think I was really contemplating at the beginning of this year just quitting social media completely because. You know, I've been feeding my breast, uh, breastfeeding my son, like checking Instagram in the background. I'm like, no, 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 no. To try and be present. Um, and I think the the solution I've found for it now is like, I will go on social media. I will unfollow anyone who kind of is just promoting themselves. Um, and then I'm going to be thinking really carefully about how I come across on social media. And like I said, you know, I'm still getting things wrong, but um, yeah, it's it's a big topic.
2: Well, it's hard because I had exactly the same thought of like, do I really need it? And then I worked out that I absolutely do because of the way our industry works. And, you know, not just I don't just need it to show people my images and my films. I need it because I want people to like me because then they're more likely to hire me because that's how the world works now.
1: Yeah, but and, and that's the thing. There are some genuine positives from social media. Uh, you know, I met I met Laura through uh, Laura Bingham through Instagram and Ness and like my expedition teammates. I've I met people from around the world, and um, I touched on it earlier. But I got um, a flesh eating parasite while I was in Guyana, and social media is what has allowed me to connect with people from around the world who are going through the same thing, who have very little access to other resources. So I'm like. I'm not gonna press, you know, eject on an all of this kind of community that exists within social media, but it's like, how do we shape those communities so that they're more positive for everybody?
2: Yeah. Maybe we should create a social media platform. We'll do it together where you're not allowed to post a picture of your own face.
1: Oh, I like it. <laughs> we might get some bum shots there. What do you think? People might yeah, go, oh, yeah. That'd well, be fine. yeah, yeah.
2: No gym <laughs> selfies either. No Strava bicycle. records. Yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed to tell anybody how fast you were or post a picture of your face. Um, you yeah. are. So how does, I? you know, I'm very aware that you'll have told this story a hundred times, but how does one get a flesh-eating parasite and what tends to happen to you when you do get one?
1: Oh, well, having survived the rapids and the waterfalls and the snakes and all, all that good stuff that exists within the jungle, you know, I came back um, from the trip with a, a bite on my neck And it didn't bother me because it didn't hurt or itch, but it was getting kind of deeper and pussier. Um, So I went to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London, which I'm sure if you're a traveler and and live sort of in the South, you might be familiar with. Um, And randomly I saw Professor Chris Whitty, uh, who took one look at it. This is before he became, you know, head COVID honcho. um, Took one look at it and said, yeah, I think that might be leishmaniasis, um, which is basically a flesh-eating parasite, Uh, there's a risk it might spread to your nose and your face might be eaten away by it. So I'm going to refer you to my colleague who specializes in this, a guy called Dr. Chris Walker, Steve Walker, sorry, Dr. Steve Walker. And um, yeah, so having got back from this expedition in the best shape of my life, I was then... Told I had cutaneous leishmaniasis. That there was a high risk that the strain I had could eat my my face, essentially, eat my nose and my soft palate. And if I didn't have a form of chemotherapy for three weeks, um, you know, it, it might it might spread. So you always think these things are never going to happen to you, don't you, Matt? When you go traveling, you're like, oh yeah, I'll well, wear my put my deet on, make sure I don't get bitten by insects. Um, but then, yeah, I did come back. With this flesh-eating parasite, and got treated unbelievably quickly. But the drugs that treat it um, are super outdated, date from the 1940s. It's a form of chemotherapy. It can like pack up your liver, your heart. My heart had to be monitored, um, and you still don't know if it kills it. So to this day, you know the, the wound has healed up, but I've been told to look out for any lesions that might appear in my mouth or my nose because it can it can always come back. Um, and by the end of these three weeks, I was so knackered. It was like I was an old woman just shuffling around. I had to sleep on the floor because moving around in bed was too uncomfortable. And I'd gone from being the fittest I'd ever been, and considering I like cake, you know, I had a six pack, which was quite remarkable for me, um, to just just being unable to move. Um, And I messaged uh, a woman that we'd met on the journey uh, called Faye, who actually joined us, Faye James. She joined us for the last section um, of the trip. And she'd shown me these massive scars on her leg halfway down the river. And I said, Faye, you know, have you ever had leishmaniasis? And she said, yes. Do you not remember the scars I had? Um, And I said, oh, yeah, I do. And I said, well, how did you treat your leishmaniasis? And she said, well, I put burning cow fat onto the lesions in order to sear out the parasite." so what what you did what um stupidly Matt. i said did it hurt and she was like just replied on facebook going yes pip yes it did (laughs) um but that for me was one of those moments where i'm like bloody hell how are we living in the 21st century in a world where treatment for this tropical disease is either outdated chemotherapy from the 1940s or like Burning cow fat, and I, I said to Faye, "Well, could you not gone to hospital? Like, what? Why did you do the cow fat thing?" And she's like, "Well, Pip, I live in a very remote community in Guyana. It's going to take me weeks to get to the nearest hospital. I've got three children. Like, it's just not possible to go." Um, and, and Faye is one of the sort of the, a, a wealthy person within Guyana, so it's not like she couldn't afford it. But for many communities, like medicine is so cost prohibitive. And then I looked at the scale of this disease and it is the second biggest parasitic killer after malaria. Yet so many people have never heard of it. And and the reason being is that it affects people in the world's most remote communities. You know, it's present in 98 countries around the world. Over a billion people are at risk of it. One million new cases of this are annually like occur annually, half of which are children. And it comes down to like money again. You know, drugs companies just can't make money out of it because of the people who who are usually at risk of getting it. So it was unbelievable for me, like being put on an IV, being pumped full of a toxic medicine, going, wow, like the scariest thing for me coming out of the jungle was not actually all the things that I thought they would be, like the Jaguars and the Cayman. It was actually um, you know, the global healthcare inequality. And it was, it was, it was staggering, um, really, to be honest, Matt. And it's something that I try and talk a lot about now because um, I had a doctor message me saying, you know, don't take this the wrong way, Pip. But in, in, a, in a funny way, I'm really glad this has happened to you um, because, you, you know, you know, I am atypical. Um, I do have a media platform and it just it just seems so the whole thing seems so messed up to me, Matt.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, but you have sort of started to answer it. You know, how has that experience affected you? as a as as a human as you but also extrinsically you know what has it made you want to do and how has it changed you in that way
1: well I think like many things when they go wrong in life you kind of you either deal with it or you bottle it up and I think for a long time I was like I'm fine I you know I just had a flesh-eating parasite didn't didn't bother me um and then actually I think what during pregnancy um I don't know if you and your wife found this, but we had um, someone come out to visit us when you're pregnant and they say, Okay, so how are you feeling? And, you know, talk to me. And I was like, Yeah, no, I'm feeling good. I actually feel a bit more energetic. You know, I don't I, I have this flesh eating parasite thing, but that's fine. And then she kind of dug on it. And it's like a little thread, isn't it? Where you kind of unravel it. And I'm like, Oh, wow. No, that actually really, that really did impact me. That was quite a big thing to deal with that I've just slightly brushed under the carpet. Um, so there was the emotional toll. Um, but then there was also just the okay. So what can I take from this? How can I turn this into something rather than like okay, this this happened to me. But what what's the positive? And I think that was the real thing that gave me a lot of motivation was actually going. Well, you know what? I can take this and I can run with this. I can say why is not more being done? Why are there not drugs that are like appropriate for people who live in remote and rural communities? um why is there not more research who are the people researching how can we like highlight their their amazing work like the drugs for neglected diseases initiative in, in geneva and stuff like that and and that was something that really gave me purpose and in a funny way i said this expedition changed me i went in full of ego i came out massively humbled and floored literally floored by a parasite um but it was the thing that gave me most purpose
2: and do you think that ego that you went in with was genuine ego? Like, and I, you know, I sense I can phrase it like this and you'll just tell me which one's true, but was it, I really do think I'm brilliant or was it, did it stem from an insecurity of, I'm not sure I'm brilliant. So I'm going to act like I'm brilliant.
1: Absolutely. It's, 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 it's the last one because I think, and I think that's true unless you're a narcissist, in which case you're like. I am brilliant um it is trying to prove something and this is I don't know if you found the same thing the joy of having children because now I'm like I am not trying to prove anything to anyone I am just going to enjoy looking at rocks on the beach where I live with my daughter and my son and I don't need to show that I've got a world first I've cycled halfway around the world whatever it is it's like who cares who actually cares Hardly anybody. So, um, yeah, just enjoy looking at, looking at nature, looking at the trees. Um, and it is genuinely the simple things that kind of bring me a lot more joy, but I I don't know, I don't know whether I had to have gone through that process to be able to be here or whether it's just, I'd love to be one of those people who could just say, I'm just content. I'm just content where I am. And if you're one of those people, you are so damn lucky, aren't you? Um, but it's a journey. We're all on a journey.
2: I think so. I completely agree. I know quite a few of those people and they really annoy me. They're some of my best (laughs) friends, but they really annoy me. Because it took, you know, I had to do 10 years of expeditions to realize that I was chasing this kind of egomaniac dream of trying to be special and prove something, that I was this big, strong, brave man. Because deep down, I didn't feel like a big, strong, brave man and that's everything I wanted. And I had to work out that actually that wasn't what I wanted in the end. Huh?
1: Yeah, but how do how do we change that? How do we change this narrative for people growing up?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm working on a film right now about toxic masculinity.
1: Um, <gasps> yes, so important
2: in the outdoors. I think you know, looking at it through that lens, particularly, I grew up. Well, who were our heroes? I mean, we could get into the Andrew Tate conversation, but you oh. know, who are young people idolizing? I think that's the that's a huge part of it. What do we want to be? What do we think is important? What's cool? More inverted commas. Um, yeah. And how many kids go through what we go through of, well, in order to feel purposeful and respected, I have to be brilliant and successful in lots of different ways. And, you know, it took us both, by the sounds of it, like 10 plus years to work out that that wasn't the case.
1: Yeah. And I guess I guess now you've got the social media thing, which I didn't really... It only hit when I was sort of, you know, going into my 20s. And I think, God, like, how do you how do you deal with that? And I think the answer for me is more outdoors education. Like, leave the phones at home, leave the screens at home and just go and get muddy, people. Yeah, totally. Um, develop that self-confidence, that inner confidence and, and self-esteem within, like, genuine self-esteem within schools and, and yeah. at home, more importantly.
2: Yeah. It's complicated, isn't it? Yes, Right, <laughs> we'll have to, you know, it's that whole. I think well, I, yeah, I don't want to go into the detail of it, but I've, you know, I've got two young kids who are preschool at the moment, and I just think I know what's sort up of personal now, and I'm going to get really grumpy with the curriculum, and I'm going to have to just yeah. keep it to myself a lot. Um.
1: But- yeah, but there's, there's power in that. We we can change things. And I do, I do sense things are changing. And, you know, we send um, Willow to a little forest school near us, which is just amazing. And seeing, I mean, seeing a three-and-a-half-year-old wandering around with a saw, uh, under supervision, but it's, um yeah, it's yeah you can just see her little face when she chops through a little bit of wood that she then drills a hole in to make a necklace. She is like, I am winning at life. Yeah, um, yeah And yeah. I'm like, yes, we need more of that. We do need more of that in our lives.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Ace, well... This has been a brilliant conversation, but we have skirted and moved and travelled around some topics. Um, And I always ask um, everyone the same two questions at the end of every episode. Um, And one day I'll do something with the answers. I don't know what yet, but it's an amazing cultural audit of the outdoor and adventure community. But um, the first is, what scares you?
1: Um, Inequality because I think it's the root of many, many problems um, within our society.
2: That's interesting. I thought you were going to say flesh-eating parasites, but of course I thought that.
1: <laughs> I dealt with that one. That's just, you yeah, know, yeah. toxic, updated chemo. Fine.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inequality is much harder to fix, I think.
1: Yeah, but it goes deep and the ramifications are, are huge. So, yes.
2: Interesting. Okay. And what brings you hope?
1: What brings me hope are small children who just see life in a beautiful way, who do stupid dances and just are free and full of joy. And I think, yes, let's, let's take more of that as adults and um, just dance and look at rocks.
2: <laughs> hear, hear. Ace, well, we'll leave it there. That's been brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: Oh well, Matt, thank you so much. And one day, when you ask these questions, I, I really want to hear what scares you and what gives you hope. Ah, Maybe I can sneak that in.
2: I'll <laughs> press, I'll press stop now, and I'll tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, like it. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at Code If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on
0: iTunes.